1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about it. in my life there's a reason go the distance did you hear the voice too did you hear it go the distance yes our grave is dead he died in 1972 are you moonlight graham no one's called me moonlight graham in 50 years unbelievable it's more than that it's perfect you build a baseball field in the middle of nowhere and you sit here and you stare at nothing this field this game a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, Burt Lancaster. Sometimes, when you believe the impossible, the incredible comes true. Field of Dreams. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am here, as is usual, with Mr. Sean Whalen. Hey, Sean. Great to be here. As always, and we are recording. I just needed to make sure. And we are welcoming back Jonathan and Maggie Schaefer-Hames. How are you guys doing? Hello. Hi, Paul. We're doing good. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us back. More baseball. Uh, you know, we've been talking for, I don't know, over a year about doing Blazing Saddles. And that just yeah. keeps going on the back burner to do other things. And you guys have gotten pigeonholed into being the baseball people. That is true. There are worse things to be. I mean, yeah. the thing is, well, is you, when we do Blazing Saddles, then we're also going to be pigeonholed into your Mel Brooks well, stuff. Because we did Frankenstein with you also. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, but, you know, you you almost cost yourself an invite when your uh, brew is swept my Mets. No. <laughs> well... They haven't been doing so well since the, then. The so. rest of the league is making up for that uh, of late, but awful sorry. It, it happens to everybody in April. You never want to play the Brewers in April. Play them in June through August, and you'll probably you win every you'll time. Probably win. Yeah, so we are actually a little delayed because I usually like to try and do the baseball episode with you guys at the beginning of the season, and we're about a third of the way into the season as we record, and it'll be a few more weeks before this one airs. So we're well into baseball, and I'm watching it as much as I can, even though my team has been underperforming. But uh, we are doing my favorite baseball movie, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to hide my my enthusiasm for this one. Uh and it's funny because unlike many baseball movies, this one doesn't really focus so much on the game. It's not a biography of any player. Uh, it's really baseball is just kind of almost the background by which the fantasy is put together. And it is a fantasy. There's no question about that. Uh, but I just love this movie. And I saw this in the movies. I've seen it. I can't tell you how many times since, but when I put it on last night, my wife mentioned that this is the third time she's had to watch it with me. And it's just that I'm lucky that she thinks it's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we watch it a lot. We've seen it a lot. We generally, while bit when baseball season is approaching, we usually like we'll crank out a few baseball movies to get in the mood. And this is always in the rotation. We usually do the Kevin Costner trilogy. Just so I can eventually build my um, thesis for no one about uh, what that unofficial trilogy is all about. Well, we've already done Bull Durham. Yep. And I'm not a huge fan of For the Love of the Game, but maybe that's a good one to do because it's not, you know, sometimes it's good to have one that you're not really so high on. Yeah, that one, that would be interesting. That That is, uh, at times, uh, in a lot of ways, it is it is my favorite baseball game, For Love of the Game. Um, I I like all of them in different ways, so that might be a fun one to do next year, maybe. And then I can save some of this pretentious stuff about the trilogy for when I've actually worked it out. It's <laughs> the only one I haven't seen. Well, that you makes it see- even better for you when we when we put yes. one on the on the uh, on the list that you haven't watched yet. But and, uh, I what- and I don't know why I haven't seen it. It's just one because it's unlike me, especially for a, I love baseball movies, so it's odd that I haven't seen that one. But it's it's one I haven't seen. What's well, your history with this one, Sean? So I saw it in the theater when it came out and was really drawn to it. It's been a while since I'd seen it, though, and and no reason other than just 
watching other movies and things like that. My wife and I, when you texted like, hey, we're going to do Field of Dreams, my wife and I watched it together. And I was excited to see it again because I remembered loving it. And but I didn't remember much about the film. I mean, the basic premise, sure. But it's it's so much more than the basic premise. And boy, in, in watching the movie, I was amazed at how much I'd forgotten and uh, I can't wait to talk about it because um, it was such an interesting experience to see this movie again and yet feel like it's so fresh. It was uh, there's a lot there's a lot to discuss and unpack on this one. See, now I started I, I started off. I didn't bury the lead. I said right off the bat, this is my favorite baseball movie. I have to say, you know, and I want to go through. I'm going to kind of roll out some of the negatives to start it off just mm-hmm. just to be fair, because I don't want to just be pouring the accolades on it. And I'll, I'll start off by saying the negatives I have do not impact my ability to enjoy the movie in any way. It's just a matter of critiquing things and trying to look at it, you know, beyond the surface level. Uh, so th- there's a lot of things about this that, that I think just kind of like you have to just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, okay. Uh, and you move on and, and, you know, you just let the story go. And the first one that, that, that jumps out at me is, these baseball players that come, the, the the ghosts, effectively, are they coming from heaven? Mm. Are they coming from hell? Are they coming from limbo where you just sit there bored forever? I I have some ideas <laughs> that they will did mention come. Ty Cobb, and we know and Ty you know Cobb's for a involved. fact Ty Cobb's not in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> There's no chance. I think that's a very interesting question, and that's actually one that I was asking myself uh, last night when we were watching the movie. Is, is that on these... the very pretentious list? <laughs> well, it... <laughs> it's on the mildly oops, it's on the mildly pretentious list because I do point out that this movie really, and again, I'm just a just to ape what you said. Uh, I have a few you know issues with that that kind of wrap around in these ways, but it does not um, detract from my enjoyment of it. But this movie does tend to really um, it's shooting or it comes across as if it's really shooting for some sort of gigantic metaphor that I don't think it really needs. You know, it, it seems like it's it's shooting for something bigger than it is when really it's just the story about one person uh, realizing that he needs to confront his own past so he can live his life now in a very elaborate way. I think that's the biggest theme in it, but I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of themes that kind of run in because yeah. I think you have, you know, that's the Kevin Costner story arc, right? But you also have the Moonlight Graham story arc. You have the uh, James Earl Jones. Uh, okay, all of a sudden I'm just drawing a blank. Uh, uh, Terrence Mann. Terrence James, Mann. Yeah, you have the Terrence Mann arc. Yeah, J.D. Salinger. Uh, and and you know, to to a lesser extent, you have uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson story arc. You have the father's story arc. You have the wife story arc. There's there's a lot of different arcs that are going on. It's not just the one of his uh, confronting his past. But my whole th- point of of the heaven question is: these are the 1920 White Sox that originally right. come out, and then eventually it expands. Now it's 1986, I believe, uh, when this movie takes place. Mm-hmm. So now for for 66 years, they haven't been able to play baseball. 
So I don't think they've been in heaven <laughs> because that's what, the, that's what their existence is all about. Yeah. Well, it could be a kind of you could really get woolly with this and say it's kind of a a, a purgatory or shiel sort of sense, like of the Jewish concept, just in which your position in afterlife, it's kind of not torture, but it's not reward. It just kind of you're in basic existence and it depends on how people how your descendants and your uh, venerate you or in Catholics terms, whether they can pray you into heaven. So maybe they've just been kind of spun out in this sort of purgatory area that's represent that he had to actually build a, a door. Cause in the book, this is based on, there's an actual gate he builds and that's where mm-hmm. they go in and out. Have um, you read the book? Yeah, I have. I read the short story in the book. A while ago. Did you read it before you saw the movie or after? Uh, I it was after for sure. Uh, it was I read it I read it a long time ago. I read it again recently after I think the most recent time I've seen it. It it's follows the the movie follows it pretty closely except it is as I I hinted it uh Terrence Mann is JD Salinger. Yes. It, and I understand JD Salinger threatened to sue if they used him in the movie and then what I found interesting is I can't remember the, the writer Kinsella uh, I believe it was the writer, not the director, had said, "What's he going to do if if we if we use his name, sue us, and say I don't like the way they portrayed me as being such a good person?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So they 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 actually toyed with the idea of saying, "Screw you, we're using your name anyway." I would also just like to point out real quick too that um, going back to the are they coming from heaven or hell? Two of them ask. If, if the, it's heaven when they yes, get there. that is true. And he says, well, to no, it's Iowa. And they're like, <laughs> oh, so it's the other place. But his then. dad says, I could have swore it was heaven. You know, and it's, it, it, mm-hmm. to them, for those players, a baseball diamond yeah. that they can use just for themselves and play baseball again for the first time ever, or for the first time in decades, would be heaven. You know, so I, I kind of gets the implication there that maybe they haven't been in heaven and that's why they come mm-hmm. to this new place and they ask if this is. Or even, they with his, do. even with his dad, I loved the idea that, I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but I kind of got mm-hmm. when you're looking about what his reason is for heaven. Um, he had that thing where he didn't have closure with his son, and the son yeah. didn't have closure with him. You know, the, the, the when he stopped him and said, hey, let's play catch, you know, and there was that moment between the two of them, that was his heaven. Um, and that's one of the things I really liked about the movie this time around was there was so many... I, I think maybe just being older now or something like that, or maybe watching it with fresh eyes. Um, I loved the themes where you can take it where your head's at at the time. Um, and that's, that's part of the fun of it. I, I loved the heaven concept with the dad and him and how it was. Two, two points from what you just said, Sean first. Uh, and I said this to my wife last night when we were watching it before he said it, I said, every time he says, Hey dad, you want to have a catch? I get goosebumps every single time mm. I said it two minutes later, he said it and I got goosebumps. <laughs> it, wasn't, it isn't even like anticipating it prevents me from happening. Mm-hmm. It happens to me every single time. Now I heard recently, and I thought this was kind of cool is that, Hey dad, want to have a catch is an East coast way of saying it that everywhere yeah. else in the country, they say, Hey, do you want to play catch? Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's okay. In the book, JD Salinger or uh, Terrence or, W W P Kinsella? 
Uh, his he had some interesting ideas about how Iowans talk as well. There's they there's a lot more y'alls, and he's definitely writing them as if they have a southern accent. And people in Iowa talk like Maggie and I do. Mm-hmm. Well, he's Canadian, right? <laughs> he wrote a lot of ba- books on baseball hmm. for a Canadian. Cool. Yeah, a lot of short stories. Well, they got baseball in Canada. Yeah, they do. They got one so whole team can. left. They have one left they had to. Yeah. Yeah. So another weakness, and I would do put up I would put up finger quotes, but I don't do finger quotes. Um, <laughs> I think at the beginning, when he does his little narration to kind mm-hmm. of you know it's the narration at the beginning is really well placed, and I think what it does is it tells you these are our characters, this is you know, this is how they're situated. Now we're going to hit the ground running because the first right out of the shoot we got, if you build it, he will come. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's no wasted time there. But I kind of wish the narration had gone on about 15 to 20 seconds longer. And after getting married, he would have a little part about how I tried to to work in the business world, maybe show a picture of him like in, you know, clumsy in a suit or something like that. Sure. You know, just to kind of give how they got from the marriage to the farm in Iowa. Because... Mm-hmm. Uh, as best as I can tell, I think about 14 years have passed from when he got married to that point, uh, if my math is is close to accurate. So he clearly is new to the farming life. It's not mm-hmm. what he had done his whole life. And there's clearly some friction between how they look at life and how her family looks at life. So, you know, you you kind of wish they had built up to it. Maybe, you know, the dad left them the farm or something like that. And, you know, we, we, we're going to give it a try and I'm 36 years old and now I'm trying to become a farmer. You know, something along those lines would have been just better to give him even a little bit more depth into knowing the characters. And again, it's a nitpick, but I think yeah, it would have served it well. I got one other nitpick that I'll put, and that's that um, Kevin Costner, though not as wooden all the time as he was in bull durham in a couple of spots there are two moments where he almost torpedoes an oscar caliber scene like the scene where moonlight graham is explaining you know telling his story you know and he's just and and he's captivated by baseball and and he's got that wistful look Mm -hmm. and then tom or tom (laughs) kevin responds with what if i told you there was a place where things like that could happen you know and it's just see that didn't it, that didn't feel as wooden to me as, as I guess okay. it did to you. That's that one. It, it, for whatever reason, it's just that line. Most of the time, I can take him. It's like there's always like one line in bold. What was the other spot? What is the other? There's an, there's a spot with um with Terrence Mann. Yeah. What was it? You because uh, you you commented on it too. Yeah. Shoot. Now I don't remember which one. See, and that's why it's a nitpick. Right. It's that little like, but I. I do find Kevin Costner sometimes to be a little wooden, to not be super emotive, but in this movie, it's hardly an issue because the whole movie is just so good. Yeah. See, I, 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 th- I think, and I want to talk about some of the individual performances, but on a whole, mm-hmm. I felt like Costner's performance was, I feel like it was really solid. But I think a lot of it was really solid based upon who he got to play off of. I think getting to play off of Burton Mm -hmm. Lancaster and getting to to play off of James Earl Jones and even to some extent playing off Amy Madigan, uh, I think that allowed him to elevate his game. And at this point, he's pretty much pretty much as big a star as he's going to be. 
he's coming off of uh, No Way, uh, what's called No Way Out, and uh, The Untouchables and Bull Durham. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> big big hits. It's you know he's on the cusp of making uh, Dances with Wolves, which was a big hit. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think it was. I think in hindsight, it's looked at as being a little more pretentious than than it was when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but I but he's at, you know, at basically at the peak of his game. Mm-hmm. I will say, um, at the beginning when Shoeless Joe first shows up, Kevin Costner does a wonderful job of playing someone. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to come across as being too eager, but is absolutely eager. That is, that is true. I will give you know, him he that. doesn't want to make a fool of himself in front of Shoeless Joe. Um, but you know, he tries to to hit the ball out to him and see if he could hit my curve. And hits it wrong. <laughs> yeah, he throws him a curve ball. He's like, Yeah, you can you can hit my curve. <laughs> you know, he does well, that so well, that balance between like wanting to seem really cool and calm and collected, but a hundred percent not being cool, calm and collected have in the face of Have you ever met you. one of your idols and had a chance to really engage in a conversation? Oh, right. Yeah. No, I would kill for a chance like that. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as, as a comic book fan, one of my big moments was I had a chance to sit down and have about a 20 minute conversation with Neil Adams. Oh, wow. Uh, and when that happened, I was, when I first sat down, I was actually like starstruck and I had to like calm myself down for a second before I could engage him in a conversation. And once I did, he was wonderful. He, you know, he had no problem having a one-on-one conversation with me, but there is that nervousness that you feel, especially when you want them to live up to your expectation of what they should be. Uh, and I felt like he did that really well. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I agree. The added pressure of you trying to live up to your expectation of how you want to be seen by him. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Because yes, exactly. that's the other side of that piece. Because I've been there before, and it's like that piece I think throws you off because you're you're trying to like put yourself in a place that sometimes isn't realistic. <laughs> and then you know you, you top that off with. I say that by the way. But you top that off with you want. You know, it's somebody who's, you know, one of your idols. So you hold them in such high esteem, but then you don't want to turn them off by being a fanboy. You don't want to be Chris Farley from Saturday Night Live, (laughs) you know, so so you try to be cool about it and and hope, you know, you could have an interaction. And in that one case, I could tell you it it did work out that way. So that was, you know, it's, it's nice when 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 you meet people who you think so highly of and they live up to that expectation uh and and you know he accepted me as kind of at least you know for that short period of time to to talk to me one-on-one and and you know it was great and i think that is very similar to what kevin costner was dealing with when he you know all of a sudden shoeless joe jackson is here you know it's amazing i think one of the things that you're talking about here that's really key is i also agree that like Kevin Costner's performances, and I I really enjoy his films, but there's pretty much every movie that I've seen of his, there's those segments where he does come off as wooden. I think um, one of the things that really strikes me, and though I think makes him a very talented actor, is he can do that and go to those places, but then in that same film have multiple sequences, and this one in particular, where now I got choked up. I mean, he really took me to a place where emotionally twice in this mm-hmm. I'm like trying to hold back. I knew what was going to happen and I'm still trying to hold back tears, which isn't like me in film, you know, especially when you can anticipate like the sequence. It's not, I've seen it before, 
there was twice in this film where I was like, wow, he really nailed it. And it was it was a sequence with his wife because I thought the relationship with the two was really powerful um, just because of the fact that with the craziness that he was doing, he had this relationship where he could really talk it through with her and got that like just overwhelming support from her in this insanity because they're putting everything on the line (laughs) for this. And then the other piece was the one we already referenced, the the catcher sequence with the dad. I mean, I was like, wow. I mean, this guy took me to a place in his interactions with this this other acting talent. Um, so it's it's funny how yeah, he's is he perfect. No, who is? But those I I have multiple movies where I've got the same criticism of his, and yet he's managed to take me on these crazy journeys in those films. Well, let's this, let's this one talk made. about that a little bit though, because I think you, you hit on a point, and I was going to talk about Shoeless Joe Jackson, but we'll get to him. Uh, first, I think it it does speak from Kevin Costner or of Kevin Costner's performance, the fact that he could be somewhat believable in that he's hearing these voices and acting upon them and all of that. I think that in and of itself takes a little bit of acting ability. And then to be able to take that a step further, and some of this is the script and some of this is his performance, to tell his wife about it and to tell Terrence Mann about it and have them kind of saying, yeah, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm with you on this. Now, Terrence Mann wasn't so much his uh, speaking as when he saw things himself, but... Is she like the best wife ever? No kidding. Yeah. I'm right here. Except for Matt. She's the second other than, best other wife than, ever. Other than, right. other than, other than, other than, and Sean's wife and my wife. Other yeah. than them, she's the best wife ever. Fourth best wife ever. We got a three-way tie for first. <laughs> well, I think she's a hero. Yeah. To tag on to what Sean was saying, I mean, they really could have gone, and I think a lesser movie would have um, had it immediately. You know, he comes in and he says it, and then his wife immediately says, well, you're crazy. And then they would have dealt with him having to convince her. Or she would have been the one who she he ultimately has to convince at or, the end. Yeah, or the or building like, the field was like going to rip their marriage apart. Right, exactly. And it doesn't. And it doesn't. It, it's you know there's problems. Of course, you know he did tear up his field, and this has caused his financial problems, which they then have to deal with. Although I don't really think it would have diminished the cost of his crop that much to do yeah, that's, that's that's another my, point that i felt was that's another that's one of my nitpicks <laughs> yeah he's like because the danny bonaducci lookalike guy from west wing who plays the brother timothy busfield yes. yeah uh he's like do you have any idea like, like how much acreage like you you're you're less now or she says something about like not being able to plant as much corn because their acreage is so low and i'm like it but there's, couldn't possibly have there were how many acres do you have there was over 100 acres of corn there easily gotta be and, if you're and doing a, a baseball farm, field is less than two acres, yeah, right? It wouldn't have that big so of an impact well, if on If we your... say five acres, oh, what's the cost of price of corn? All right, figuring this out. Yeah, in 1986, <laughs> what was the cost? Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with you. That is one of the inconsistencies of the movie is that, you know, if, if that's their main crop, they have many, many acres of it. And if they have many, many acres of it, they didn't diminish it by that much to make this baseball field. Right. Now, you could... You know, you, you, sometimes you have to headcanon it, and you can headcanon it with the cost of getting the the field built and putting up these lights and doing everything that he did. You know, could have just 
put them so far in a hole that the crop wasn't going to, you know, make it where it should have made it go. Uh, so you, you can kind of, you know, these are the things that kind of, again, I, I nitpick them myself, but none of them impact my ability to enjoy this movie. Not even a little bit. Mm-mm. So, uh, I'm going to go back to Shoeless Joe Jackson. Now, this is one of the things, I, I don't know if you guys were listening when Sean and I uh, reviewed the Elvis movie, uh, and I had my my rant about history in the movies and when they try and show things and what's true and what's not true and how it, you know, how everything happened. And a lot of people have problems with the fact that Shoeless Joe Jackson is shown uh I believe as a right-handed hitter in this. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's really a left-handed hitter mm. uh, in real life. And that Shoeless Joe Jackson was, you know, really just an uneducated, uh, you know, farm boy, basically. Mm. Uh, and, and in this movie, he's portrayed as kind of being kind of savvy and, and, you know, kind of on, you know, on, on top of everything. So it, it, you know, it could have just as easily been, you know, he's, not Shoeless Joe Jackson. He's an anonymous ball player. Uh, I'm going to close the door because the dog is barking like a nut. Oh, I think our dog hears it. She doesn't know where it's coming from. No. There we go. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, I don't like when they play fast and loose with history because I think there's people who tend to watch it and think, oh, this is what it was. But so on the other hand, I don't. Started. I, I don't think that in this they gave you anything where it was like, oh, you know, this is something you're going to argue with people about. You know, you know, no, he was right handed. You know, I don't think that's going to happen. I think uh, you learned something. You're smarter in purgatory. Yeah, maybe that's, <laughs> maybe I'm that's saying, it. And that's what it is. When you go into purgatory, everything changes. Now, all of a sudden, you're smarter. Now, they said that it, what I read, actually, was that they uh, cast Ray Liotta in the part because he's got this sense about him where you don't really feel totally comfortable near him and they thought that that would keep people kind of on edge a little bit watching the movie i can uh, see that really i don't know if it quite worked but there is something a bit off-putting about him see i got from his performance i got the res- a little bit of resentment and the sadness mm-hmm. that i think shoeless mm-hmm. joe yeah. well not i don't think he definitely did feel after he was banned from baseball mm-hmm. It, he he kind of does haunted a little bit, and mm-hmm. I think for a ghost, mm-hmm. you know. And then, you, but you see his progression as it goes on after he gets yeah, to he play, opens up a and he bit. opens up, and he's helping he's, the, he's helping Moonlight, you know, with his at bat. Yeah, especially and after like watching Eight Men Out, this movie. Well, that was like D.B. Sweeney in Eight Men Out, and I think he played it much more to the historical way he would have been. He did, I, yeah, I think so too. Shoeless Joe is an incredible baseball player, just in case no one knows. <laughs> well, and, and they, they do a good job as far as that goes Yeah. Uh, with having the exposition of having Kevin Costner explain to his daughter Karen, yeah. uh, you know, oh, and he did this, and Babe Ruth uh, copied his swing, and, <laughs> you know, the things like that that he did. You know, I think that was really a good way to do, put the exposition into the movie. Uh, yeah. And he batted 375 in the World Series that they threw. And they do a good job of pointing out that, you know, they couldn't really prove that Shoeless Joe tried to throw the game. He took the money, but he didn't play like someone who was trying to throw a game. I wrote it. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. So now 
I question too if it should have been Shoeless Joe or just a nondescript character. Um, as far as the act for the purpose of this film and what the story they were trying to tell, I thought Ray Liotta did a great job of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree totally. I got more of the vibe of he's lost, looking for purpose, looking for resolution, looking yeah. for something. And it was yeah. kind of cool that he came out of the corn maze looking that way. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I thought it was really cool that that was like the presentation there. And like, I felt that off of him. He didn't need to say a word. And when he did, I mean, it further reiterated that, but I mean, the presentation was there. Oh yeah. The first time you see him when the little girl comes in, says there's a, there's a guy out in the lawn Mm -hmm. and he looks, he does look lost. Like he has no idea how he got where he is, but he's happy to find out that it's a place where he can play baseball. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so moving on a little bit, Timothy Busfield. Now I've heard criticism that he isn't quite villainous enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and but I think the the you know I mean I think he comes off as pompous. I think he comes off as overly aggressive, mm-hmm. and I think he comes off as condescending. So I think that is enough to make him a villain in the movie. I think if you made him more villainous than that, then he needed to have a much bigger mustache so he could twirl it. Exactly. Uh, but, you know, the one thing, the one thing that, that I just, you know, and maybe these are just nicer people than me, but, but after he caused my daughter to fall off the, uh, oh, no, the bleachers and get a hot dog stuck in her throat and almost die, I wouldn't have said, hey, why don't you go get a glass of water? I would have said, get the hell out of here. Yes. I agree with you there. However, this time through watching it, I was just kind of like looking at things. From his point of view, he's acting completely reasonable. You know, oh, and yeah, I he's, oh, said, my partners will let you live here and you don't even have to pay rent. Yep. Yeah, and he says he's, you know, the only reason that he's there is because he loves his sister. He loves his sister. He's trying to help his sister. He thinks his, he he clearly doesn't like the man she married. And now he thinks, now he thinks that he's crazy. And he's going to ruin his sister's life. And he is dragging his But you don't pick up a little kid and shake her and say you're turning your kid into a space case. Well, no, that, once once you get to there, then, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> he wants that's what he portrayed really well he has to be right and he yeah. needs, he needs the acknowledgement from them no matter what it takes he's obsessed with like they've eventually got to do that i was convinced like when he goes home he's like saying i think i finally got him. i think i finally got him to see the light and, <laughs> and i mean that was i got her to see the light and i think i finally i mean you kind of got that vibe off of him so it's crazy to me that like they'd say like he wasn't villainous enough I think he's got a cauldron at home. I mean, it's <laughs> well, his wife didn't seem, she seemed kind of vacuous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and his mother, his mother. Uh, yeah. But I think Annie got all the personality in that family. She yeah, did. She's I, definitely I the so. fun one. I, and my favorite Annie moment is after she basically tears that woman in the, uh, in the meeting, a new one when Hell she yeah. slides out and she's throwing punches. Yeah. I, I just yeah, love that moment. Hey, as a librarian, somebody who wants to stand up and make that speech in a, in a thing I'm all for, all of you can go out and do that. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. Everyone go out and make if, big grandiose speeches. If do there it. is a book banning in, in the, in your area and there is, uh, and there is some sort of, uh, meeting along or along those lines and you have, 
you know, the verbal chops, I'm not saying say what Annie did, but a, a word of against censorship would be appreciated by all of us. Thank you. I totally agree with you on yes. that. I do not I, want I to hear about censorship. Sequence. Yeah. I love that scene too. Although we were commenting it at the time that it's it's funny because Ray is, you know, he's so like obsessed with his realization that he has completely missed what she's doing. Yeah, my reaction to that scene was like, you jerk. She was just really awesome and you completely missed it because you kept writing Ease's pain. <laughs> One thing I noticed this time about the sequence though, and, and you're 100% correct. One of the things I liked is though that she was kind of calling him out on that. Like, yeah. you know, and I really liked that detail in her acting and portrayal of it. She was like, hey, listen, kind of uh, look at me a little bit here. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm supporting you on like, we've got a field in the backyard and all this other stuff. Like this moment right now is mine. And I do need you a bit here. I mean, she didn't, and it was subtle how she did it. It wasn't mm-hmm. that, it, not the exposition I just put on it, but you can read that into things that she was doing. And I thought that was cool. I thought the way that they handled it, it said a lot about them as a couple, which to me was really a critical part of this. Because if you've got me having her just blindly following him and you're not seeing, like, the strength of that relationship developed along the way, this movie doesn't mean as much. They did a really good job of developing that relationship in a way that I think some films miss. Yeah, exactly. I think it would have been just as bad that way. Sorry, is if they would have had her blindly follow as if she would have fought with him the whole time. I think it would have been a far less enjoyable movie. But this was so good. And she her performance is really, really underrated as far as I'm concerned. She's really good in almost every scene she's in. Mm -hmm. And different. And and she doesn't play like Mm -hmm. a cookie cutter character. Yeah. It's one of the things that I liked is I get them as a couple, but they're also like this fun, unique, different couple to film. You don't usually have a couple that like operates this way. I no. thought, no, the, I thought the that co- was cookie good. cutter performance would have been the uh, hell no, you're not doing this. Yes. You know, this, yeah. this this was this was giving her. Keeping her from putting up the opposition and having to make her performance make it believable. Mm hmm. Because it would it would be easy for that to be to to ring false, but with with the way she plays it, I think you know I think it does make sense because she comes off as kind of the flower child and all of that, and I think yeah. it, it really does play well. Uh, so just working our way through the characters, I'm gonna go to young Archie Graham, oh. uh, <laughs> and and see what you guys think there. What do you think of the casting? What do you think of the performance? What do you think of the character? He's I love him. He, that whole the whole sequence is is where he's standing along the side of the road is done so well because it had been built up by a really long sequence of them driving, which I really appreciate. It's something that's missing from movies these days. You don't have those quiet moments as much where you'll just take time showing somebody driving along a road. You know, you want to cram as much content in. And it was just this very slow thing. They were having this conversation and you've almost kind of forgotten about moonlight at this point and is moving on and then suddenly there's this kid and the way he's standing there and is you know in his clothes and how he's acting and how he walks up you just know there's something off and interesting and you, and uh you you probably pick up pretty quickly on what's happening even i mean i remember i i don't know which time but there was one time i watched because i 
like you, every time I watch this, I have forgotten so much of it. And I completely forgot it once, but then figured it out before the characters did. So I was proud of myself for that. I don't know what I'm... I think I had a point there. I enjoy it. He's very well cast. I enjoy how he um, comes across, um, how excited he is and his little anachronisms talking and the bit with the wink was great and how scared he was with it. Well, the, the thing with the wink was even better because Burt Lancaster said it and then he did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that was his dream. So that, that really, you know, that, that made it so much better. Uh, and I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Burt Lancaster is my favorite in this movie, even though he's got such a small part. He's got, I believe, one of the single most cool voices ever in the history of of filmmaking. I think his performance is just phenomenal. Uh, and what's interesting is uh, apparently they considered having, uh, or they wanted to have Jimmy Stewart play that part. Uh, which probably would have been equally effective and equally great, but they were, you know, both, you know, I, I think it would have, Jimmy Stewart would have been amazing, but Burt Lancaster was amazing in the part. Uh, I, I just, you know, I, I, I find myself uh, just doing that all the time. You know, I got to get home or Alicia's going to start thinking I got a girlfriend or yeah. you know, even, even, even yesterday, I just, I can't help myself when the scene comes up, I just, hot dog, hot you know, dog. <laughs> But he, he, he's just so cool. And then to put the two together, uh, this is to me, this is the philosophical heart of the movie is. It talks about, or it talks to the moments in your life where you make choices and how they affect you and how they affect others. And this is what made it seem like to me, the it's a wonderful life of its era. Um, you know, it's it's. He talks about, you know, if he if he had stayed in baseball and what would have happened and all of that. But he didn't. And it's it's again with Jimmy Stewart playing the part, it really would have resonated. He gave all that up and he became like the he became like George Bailey. He was he was in town. Everybody loved him. He would help people. He would do everything. Uh, and, and I'm sure, you know, every one of us can think back to the key moments in our lives where we made a choice and how they've come to affect us over the years. And he talked about how you don't know necessarily that they're the key moments of your life until you're older and you're looking back on them. Mm-hmm. So it's just there's, there's so much philosophically there that it gives such a depth to it besides the father son relationship, which is, you know, the, the thing that gives me goosebumps in the movie. But to me, it's, it's, it's a lot of the heart of the movie is these choices and how they affect our lives and where they bring us. Uh, And ultimately, he has to make the decision. He's on the baseball field when the little girl, Karen, falls and she's choking on the hot dog. He's got to make the choice of staying here as young Archie Graham or walking off and being Moonlight Graham as the doctor again uh, and saving this child and, and giving all of that up. And he does so and he shows no regret. He's he's happy to have you know, had that moment in the sun where he didn't even get the hit that he wanted. All he did was a sacrifice fly, which I think I wonder if the writer even had some feeling of sacrifice would mm-hmm. be effective. Oh, sure. there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's to me, there's a lot, a lot of meat there. I agree. And it's like you're reading my notes here. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
It's reading. It's like you're reading my notes here. I, I wrote this whole thing about Moonlight Graham getting to have an at bat was like George Bailey getting to see what the world would be like without him. Um, what's even just to, to add a coda to that, uh, just to add the level of profound, he if you interpret it a certain way, Moonlight gives up baseball heaven. You know, in order to, um, you know, go to wherever you know, Doctor well, doctors heaven. go to heaven, but you know he had to make that choice. Mm-hmm. It he was goes to Doctor Heaven. Yep. <laughs> he, also, he also gave up the same dream twice. Exactly. Yeah. But Which he got his. Really interesting that he gave it up a second time. But when he talks to Ray in his office, the scene that John says he was a little wooden in, he 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 doesn't show any regrets from not doing that. He talks about how he would have loved to have done it. But he doesn't show any regret for the life he had, which then kind of plays with the fact that he's comfortable going back to being that. Did you notice like when he was going to leave, like that he walked into the corn and vanished? Like, did what does that like? I guess what my question is, he was the one character that I was wondering. This is the only time I noticed it. He walked into the corn at the end and vanished like other characters did. What does that mean for him? Terrence? Oh, Terrence? No, no, no. no, no we're talking I, Moonlight right now. Oh, did Moonlight van? I don't. I, so he went. Into the, he went into the corn at the end, like after he did all of that. His exit to the scene, he walked into the corn and vanished, oh. like mm-hmm. Terrence did. Actually, same. So you're 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 linking it to the same kind of concept, but he vanished too. And I didn't know how to like it wasn't just he walked into the corn. You actually saw him vanish. And I don't know if that meant that he went back to his life or if he. Exactly. You saw everybody vanish when they went in, when 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 the one character makes his reference to the Wizard of Oz with the I'm melting. uh, I thought they were they all faded once they went in there. But I guess my question is, if we're talking about that, like when they go into the corn, they're kind of going on to like the great beyond or something like that. What does that mean for him? I guess that he's the only one like Terrence. I was pretty clear that meant he was kind of going yep. on to the great beyond um, all the players. I was kind of convinced that they were going on to the great beyond moonlit. I'm like, wh- what is, does that mean? He is going back to his life or. Well, he's already he died 10 years ago. Is in the movie, according oh, to the librarian okay. that they met. So he's probably just going back to Dr. Heaven, wherever he is. So now, just to, to clarify that, too, apparently Moonlight Graham was a real person. Uh, actually died in 1966, not 1972. He had one plate appearance uh, in, in the major leagues. So, I mean, it, it is based on reality, uh, that character. I, you know, I don't know how much of the background of him becoming a doctor or any of that is true or not but uh you know apparently time right what's that 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 was when they traveled back in time wasn't that Mm -hmm. yeah and apparently what i heard was uh that moonlight graham died in 1966 in real life but they decided to have it 1972 because they thought it was effective to have the richard nixon uh electing poster because it would give everybody that you know, in in 1989, when this came out, people would say, OK, I know now it's 1972. Sure. Mm-hmm. No, I don't I don't know if, you know, young kids now would be able to put a year on that. But I think in 1989, mm-hmm. people were able to. Um, so Terrence Mann 
first of all, James Earl Jones, Darth Vader is there. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's hard to go wrong with James Earl Jones. Uh, what I heard was that his wife read the speech that he gives. You know, it's baseball, Ray. That whole speech, and said, "You got to do this." Yeah. Uh, and then I heard he actually rewrote that speech to. You know, he took what they had and he he doctored it up to the way he wanted it to be. And it is an awesome little soliloquy that he gives. Uh, the a criticism I heard is that they don't uh, address the uh, the imbalance of, of black players in the league. Mm. But I don't you know, and, and I, I can't say they're wrong, but I don't think that's the message this movie was trying to send. I don't think this movie was trying to be about civil rights and or anything like that uh, or slighting of certain people. It is a shame, you know, I'll just say to, to, to look back on history and know that they had a separate Negro leagues and, and regular baseball league. And it would be nice to see, well, if you had all those players integrated into the major leagues, what would, you know, how would it have been different? You know, what would Babe Ruth have done against uh, Satchel Paige? You know, what, you know, what would have gone on if you had all these different people there? It's, it's nice to fantasize about it, but you know, there, there was a movie about Jackie Robinson and that kind of addresses the racial divide and all of that. This movie wasn't about that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, because this movie, I mean, ultimately what it is, is, and I don't mean this in a negative way. This movie is about a child's love of baseball, just the love of baseball as the wonderful thing in which you just ignore the warts and the bads. You're not talking about labor relations. You're not talking about billionaire owners. You're just thinking about a bat and a ball and the sky and the grass. And they give you a, a... Four second sequence to say exactly that, John, because he says, Oh, the owners do this, and then she was just, yeah. Joe just goes, Owners, owners, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so they, they, they give you exactly that, they tell you that's not what this is about. I know, but since we're on the topic of Terrence Mann, is he dead? Does he die in Boston? I don't think so. Yeah, it's weird. I think he gets I think, to be I a think he goes in and he comes out and he writes again. I, think. I hope so. Because that's kind of, that's how I interpreted it, that he was good. Because they made it out to be like this big goodbye, but he says, well, I'm going to write about it. And I'm like, but everybody else is coming back tomorrow. Like, is he just, is he just going for a sleepover? And then he's going <laughs> to come back. Like, it's going to be okay. Um, but I, I do, I did kind of play with the, the theory, I think John found it online, that some people were saying that Terrence Mann had died in the apartment in Boston. And the only thing that kind of lends credence to that is when he, He's in the newspaper is missing because his son has tried to call him twice with no answer. And you never see him complete that phone call. You see him start to dial on the phone, mm-hmm. but then he puts the receiver down and he just says, what am I going to tell him? And he starts right. laughing. And it's a, it's very sweet. Uh, so you're thinking like the sixth sense there. Yeah, I don't buy the theory either. But people that do will, will point out that he only really talks to old people. You know who might be able to see him because mm. they're older and they're it closer is, to un- death, right? Exactly. Okay. And, and then once they get, he gets to the field, then you know he's well, caught he, up in the whole thing, and right. then everybody can. But that it. speech that he gives is, and I mean, yes, he's Darth Vader, but to me, he'll always be Mufasa. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so to hear Mufasa give this <laughs> speech, uh, it's so beautiful, and it, it's very J.D. Salinger-ish. I've not finished Catcher in the Rye because I found it deeply annoying, but I do have all of J.D. Salinger's short stories. 
Um, and I love them dearly. She does. They're right over You know there. what? I just realized I we we have a movie here with James Earl Jones in it. And three minutes ago, I commented that Burt Lancaster has the coolest voice. <laughs> I got I got to give him a tie then. Though. I got to give him a tie because yeah. no, nobody's got cooler voice than either of them. Nope. But speaking of disembodied voices, yeah. uh, they apparently never said who it is that says, if you built it, they will come. Uh, and rumor is, rumors are that it's Kevin Costner doing it. Rumors are that it's Ray Liotta doing it. And the third rumor is that it's Ed Harris, who was Amy Madigan's husband. Right. And I hmm. don't know who it is because they've never said. Right. In my head canon, it's Kevin Costner, just because that ties it up in a very nice bow at the end when you say, it was you. And then Shoeless Joe turns to him and says, no, it was you. It was you. I think, I think actually that is... I hadn't even thought of it from that perspective, but that makes sense. That's that, the closest we you get know, if, to. If you know, if you kind of go with the theory that in heaven, time isn't what it is now. Yeah. So it's that very even, Yeah. Yes. So then, you know, he, he, he would actually be in heaven at the same time, kind of as, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of the nexus for Captain Kirk, maybe. Um, but, <laughs> oh, man. you know, if he's, if he's in heaven, maybe he's. He, he's doing the quantum leap and he's setting right the wrongs that were, were done and he's getting uh, Ray back with his father. Now, his father has, what, a 45 second to a minute and a half role in this movie. And I think he's awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, you know, the whole thing is, you know, when, when he when he says, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. Really? I, I thought it was heaven. You know, like it just yeah. the way he, he performs that short scene is just wonderful. Now, less is more sometimes. Yes, exactly. Boy, did this film do that well in certain sequences. That's one of them where I think if you had done a lot more, you know, gone like farther than that, I think you would have lost something. That was that build to that moment and just having it be that. Well, just having him say, hey, dad, Mm -hmm. says they both knew who each other were. Mm hmm. You know, that 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 it's not OK. You know, you're pretending that you're a stranger or whatever, uh, which is the way the scene starts. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, once he says, hey, dad, and John Kinsella doesn't blink, it's like, yes, you know, he's mm-hmm. right there with him. He's not saying, why are you calling me dad? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it says that they they know they understand. Uh, so I, I just think I, I just think it's a you know, again, it, it just gives me. The goosebumps, just I, even talking about it. I got them right now. <laughs> well, from the moment that Joe <coughs> Jones as Terrence Mann does the speech, which I have Mandela affected in very hilarious way once, I always thought, and you even said the same thing, I constantly say baseball Ray. You know, whenever I'm quoted, that line, that's the um, play it again, Sam, I guess, because he never says baseball Ray. But there was a message board that I used to hang on on and and you would like write a tag before your title. And one day I just wrote baseball Ray to talk about baseball mm. and that caught on and they still use it even <laughs> and they have no idea why. Every time they do it, someone says, why are we using this? Uh, John likes feel of dreams and doesn't know what lines are. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Tampa Bay baseball Rays. <laughs> yep. So uh, and they even used that speech in an MLB ad campaign last well, yeah, season, season before. 
I've definitely seen that commercial. Yeah. Yeah. That's why Maggie says that they are the Tampa Bay baseball Rays. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The last thing in my notes to talk about is the soundtrack slash score. And I think it's, it's fascinating that the score is very understated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking at James Horner's body of work, he has very, very varied scores in his career. Apparently, he was criticized at some points for kind of plagiarizing himself a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't really have a problem with that. But what James Horner did in this movie, most of it is very, very low key. A lot of just the piano, a lot of just, you know, just a little bit of orchestration. And it's just really what exactly what I'd say a, a score should do. It's highlighting these scenes. It's giving us kind of an emotional beat to it but it's not overpowering the scene and then what they did was they added some pop music in it for the more upbeat moments like playing jessica by the allman brothers and things like that yep uh that you know so so we kind of eliminated horner having to do that with the score and i think the two together work so well this score does a lot of heavy lifting um, for, in, in many scenes. If, if you tried to watch it, just because of the how the piano tinkling is always just, oh, magic's happening. Yeah, it's the, the key yeah. for mysticism. Yep. And it, it's so good because it's, you know, you're there, you don't, you are just instantly back and you know what's happening and you are in the moment. Well, and it's perfect because you know that something kind of magical is about to happen. But the piano sounds sad. The whole movie is very somber. Yeah. You know, it it's dealing with kind of heavy emotions. It's dealing with unresolved issues between fathers and sons. It's dealing with, um, you know, being saddled with being called a cheater, even though technically you probably didn't and you were the best one to play baseball ever, but no one's ever going to know. It, it's dealing with a, a lot of different things. And that little piano bit, just those couple of notes, because that's really ultimately all it is, is just a few notes on the piano. And you know that something is going on it's it's a very good score and it never gets in the way of the story no Uh, there's there's sometimes scores where like the score is almost to the point you know like i'm here and you (laughs) (laughs) and i i think it does a really great job in certain scenes of knowing i mean that's a i think your people who are very talented at doing this know how to take you emotionally where you need to go but not get in the way and it really, really did a nice job of that. I mean, it was, it was, it's a really special score, I think, because of what it accomplishes. Mm-hmm. So that is, I've run through my notes, and now I'm going to just ask if you guys have any other points on this. Through, it's amazing how many of my things you said. It, <laughs> oh. Am I the only one who gets? like kind of feelings of LA story from this movie. Just it's the, the realism, but like the whimsy. Have you well, seen now I do. Now I do. I hadn't mm-hmm. thought of it before that, but now I want to see it again. Cause I got so much. It's a wonderful life out of this. See, and, and uh, that's what I didn't, I didn't see. It's a wonderful, or I, I've seen, not that I haven't seen the movie. I didn't get that from this film, but I kept thinking of LA story with <laughs> the sign on the freeway playing the bagpipes. Oh, that's interesting. You know, just I, this kind of absurd, sweet absurdism. And if you don't want to think about it too hard because you're not supposed to, just go with it. Yeah, that's you know, that's what I was getting in the beginning when I was talking way too much about, you know, 
shooting for bigger themes than it has. Mm. This this movie is what it is. And you see a lot of things where people are trying to make it into something, you know, even bigger than it is. It's big enough. This is about, you know, redemption and fathers and sons. And it's about if you build it, they will. If you build it, he will come. If you confront your past, you can live your future kind of thing. Or um, I had a point with that. I'm doing very well today, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> if, um, but. Oh, right. But also, like all of the Costner trilogy movies, uh-huh. there is also a theme in there at some level where it is about recognizing when you have to leave baseball and the somberness of it. That's a sad thing. It might be a necessary thing. And this isn't a this is kind of about the, or this particular movie is about getting a second chance in a lot of cases. But still, at the end of it, you know, like with Moonlight, he had to leave again. You know, it is. He and, and he got and you. He and his father got that last catch, but then presumably is going to leave again. It's well, the he. Which one is it? Is it his dad who says that heaven is a place where wishes come true? Towards the end of the movie, it's either him or Shoeless Joe. One of them says that heaven is a place where wishes come true. And now I'm not sure. Everyone in the movie, except I think for the wife, has a wish. You know, Shoeless Joe wishes he could play baseball again. James Earl Jones, Terrence Mann, wishes for some peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Costner wishes that he could resolve his issues with his dad and never got the chance because his dad died before he could. And all of them get their wishes granted Annie wants, in a field in Iowa. Annie um, uh, misses the 60s and laments it and wishes that she could have a chance to um, rabble rouse in the 60s when she gets one chance to do that as well. She so does get to go. do that, yeah. John is the one who says, oh, yeah, it's it's the place where dreams come true. Okay, who did? So I'm sorry. The dad. John the dad. It is the dad. Cool. OK. Mm-hmm. I just looked at, I just looked it up. I didn't know it off the top. I'll admit I didn't know it off the top. Of my head. <laughs> you're killing, you're killing <laughs> the illusion, pal. It is. Yes, I have that kind of recall. Yes. Oh, one more thing. Apparently Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Oh yeah, are in the uh, movie. I have uh, are in the crowd scene at Fenway Park. Mm-hmm. Even though yes, you cannot I, see I, them, I see but they did a Vanity Fair thing yeah. about their um, uh, careers together, right, and, and that was like one of the first things they did as kids in Boston was they got to be extras in the in Fenway. And then when um, Ben Affleck did the Sum of All Fears with the same director. He mentioned that to him. He said, oh, it's nice to be working with you again. Yeah. And so they called up Matt Damon and had him have a cameo. Is that where he that plays movie. the waiter? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let me ask you another what if question, because I, I mentioned the Jimmy Stewart uh, that they wanted him to ca- be cast in the movie. Uh, initially, they also wanted Tom Hanks to play yeah. Ray Kinsella. Mm. How different of a movie would it be then? Mm. Tom Hanks at that time. Too, because that would have been right off of about Big. I was just gonna say he must would have, have probably been around the time of Big. Maybe just a little after that. Yeah, yeah. you know he's amazing in uh, A League of Their Own, but it's an extremely different <laughs> character. Yeah, I feel like it. Kevin, I think I said this once before, actually on this show, that Kevin Costner plus baseball is like Tom Cruise plus running. Yeah, it's just much. gonna make a good movie. <laughs> yep, exactly. You just you're gonna enjoy yourself. Yeah, I really can't, Tom. I think Tom would have been it would have been good. Tom Hanks is an amazing actor, but I think Kevin Costner, even though he doesn't quite have the acting chops as Tom Hanks in my mind, he still pulls off an everyman 
He does. A little better because Tom Hanks. And he can play baseball. Tom Hanks winds up looking a lot like Tom Hanks, and it takes a while in the movie for me to realize it's not him. That's the thing. Like, if I see Tom Cruise in a movie, it's like, it's, but it's Tom Cruise. I don't care what his character's name is. It's Tom Cruise. And I feel like that might... But I wasn't... I don't know if Kevin Costner was that big in 86 or 89 when the movie came out. I was just being born, you see. So yes. I didn't know from Kevin Costner. So maybe it was the same thing for people at that time. Maybe they did have a hard time seeing past the Kevin Costner. Oh, I doubt it. I think he's just he, – he, well, we, he had done Bull Durham yeah. a year before that, so the baseball connection was there. Um, he does an every he does an everyman pretty well. I think that's probably a big component of the success of his career. Because even if, as we've said, you know, he even gets allowed a, a couple of wooden moments and it doesn't ruin the performance. Not even a bit. No, not at all. Uh, and I, I, much like I said with Jimmy Stewart, if he had played the part instead of Burt Lancaster, I think it probably would have been just as good of a movie with Tom Hanks playing the part, knowing what his acting ability is. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have been a better movie, though. No. I don't think so either. It would have been different, yeah, but not necessarily better. I think it would have been different. I think it would have been as, I think I would probably enjoy it just as much, but I can't say I would think it would be better. Yeah. And and that goes with, with either of those casting choices, Jimmy Stewart over uh, Burt Lancaster or mm-hmm. Tom Hanks over uh, Kevin Costner. Mm-hmm. So I guess now We've already made it clear that I. Uh, what do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to start this? I will start. This is Jaws. <laughs> Hi, I'm John, and this is Jaws. <laughs> I am jo- This is Jaws. Of the three baseball movies so far, I did Major League Two, which I gave it a a um, adju- adjusted Jaws two. Field of uh, Bull Durham, I gave a Jaws, and Field of Dreams is definitely a Jaws. Yeah, if, I, if I agree. If I was going to show someone one baseball movie and I didn't know anything else about them, this would be the one I would show them. See, I'd probably go with Major League, but that's fine. I like Major League. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so where, where do you uh, rank it, Maggie? Oh, it's Jaws. Oh, it's 100% Jaws. It's like, it. Uh, it's a classic, I guess, maybe because it's a niche subject in that it's a baseball movie. You know, it's in like a smaller group of classics than like, you know, Casablanca and the big classics, you know. Mm. But it's 100 it, percent. It's 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 a good movie. <laughs> yeah. Go watch it. it. it, it and in, in many ways, it's not really a baseball movie. Yeah. There's no game. There's no point where you're saying, oh, are they going to win or whatever. There's nobody whose biography is being shown to us. Right. It's just baseball is kind of the backdrop for it a little bit. But it is. that's all it is. But it's, it's still my favorite baseball movie. Oh, and it's it's got the spirit of baseball it, in it. And it's got the, some of the magic of baseball. Like when Radio, Ray Liotta says it's the, the thrill of the grass. The thrill of the, uh, of the grass. I, I love that scene. And yeah. ironically, in that scene, um, they were in a drought when they were shooting. And there was no grass. They were. He was standing on top of uh, dirt that was painted green, talking about the thrill of the grass at that right. point. But it's it's about the love of baseball yeah, and base- how people love baseball, and it, it's Jaws. What do you say, Sean? It's Jaws. I mean, which isn't a big shock with how much I was talking about how much I loved it. I, I think what I'm shocked about is I think I walked into watching this knowing that it was going to be Jaws, and I'm 
saying it's Jaws for so many reasons beyond mm-hmm. and yeah. than what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. I hadn't watched this in a while, and you know I knew it was a movie I loved, had very fond memories, so that wasn't a shocker for me. What was a shocker is I think everything I really dug about it. I was like, oh my gosh, this film has so much more depth than I remember, and I see myself wanting to watch it again because I know I'm going to watch it differently. Mm-hmm. I think that's really where it's a Jaws movie. It's the fact that it pulls you back in. You want to watch it again. I think my experience is going to be different. I think what I think the corn is and what's going on with them is going to be different every time I watch it. And I thought that that's a cool part of the film. I think you can get really philosophical and based on who you're talking about with it, you're going to have a different experience. And that's that's a sign of a really great story that's really well told with acting talent that just nailed it. And it's, like you said, the music was phenomenal. I mean, there's I, I, the worst thing I can say about there's a couple things that I thought maybe were wooden. And like. I forget about that, like two seconds later, because of the fact that then they make me cry, <laughs> <laughs> which is good for me to do in a movie, because I was like holding it back and fighting it. But my wife was bawling next to me and I'm like sitting there I'm like, I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, just a, something I forgot to mention is one uh, anachronism I noticed uh, that never caught my attention before yesterday in all the times I've seen it is if Archibald, Archibald Graham was from the, I don't even know, 1910s, 1920s, whatever year he was supposed to come from when he comes in and he says, oh, I hear they get you a job to work in while you're, you know, yeah. while, you're while you're playing or whatever. Uh, how did he know who Gil Hodges was? I don't uh, know who Gil Hodges is. I think he did they show up in the field. He says, "Look, that's uh, I don't remember somebody." Then he says, uh, "Mel Hot and and Gil Hodges and Mel Hot and Gil Hodges would have been well past his time." Oh, Gil Hodges was what the first the... baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers, man. Yeah. Uh, oh, and okay. then and then he he was the first. He was he wasn't the first. He he was he he was on the original Met team, uh, and he was their manager in 1969 when they won the World Series. Yep. Oh, okay, okay. He lived he lived literally four blocks from where I grew up. Uh, <laughs> and when we would drive by his house, they would say, that's Gil Hodge's house. And I remember as a young kid, I, I was looking out the car window, trying to look over the fence to see if his Mets uniform was hanging from the clothesline, which <laughs> it was not. And my brother made fun of me for saying <laughs> That's so cute. That's awesome. Anyway. I am choosing uh, to believe that the rules of this world remain that you're smarter in purgatory. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that as a, as, as a that makes sense as a rule. So that's gonna that's gonna do it for our discussion of Field of Dreams. If you haven't seen it, see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we sign off, Maggie and John, what are you doing lately? Oh boy, what are we doing? <laughs> Planning. <things? laughs> uh, our podcast is MWC Podcast. MWC stands for whatever we can shoehorn that into the married with whatever. Yeah, exactly. Married with comics, married watching cartoons. Maggie wants cookies. Um, (laughs) We have a number of uh, cartoon episodes in the hopper that will be coming out pretty soon. The the next thing we record is for Bluey. So we're going to have some like how much sentiment on top of sentiment after this one. It's an emotional week. Yes. (laughs) If you're not familiar, a Bluey. the cartoon has the ability to out of absolutely nowhere punch you in every feel you have. If you've ever been a child, a parent, 
or had a dog or been a dog, you know, <laughs> this show's great for you. But uh, that's you can find just point your podcatcher at MWC Podcasts. Uh, sort of on Twitter, you can send uh, MWC underscore podcast there. Maggie is not really on social media nope. of any kind. If you want to talk to either of us, send us an email at uh, marriedwcomics at gmail.com. All right. And I want to thank you guys for coming on again. Oh, thank you for uh, it's always having a pl- us. Always a pleasure to have you. We and, love talking uh, to you. I guess us. next time we're going to break the mold of the baseball movies and we're going to go back to Mel Brooks because <laughs> we've been talking about doing Blazing Saddles forever. And I think there's a lot to talk about there, too. Yeah. So uh, we'll get that done hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, but I shoot with this hand. <laughs> <laughs> Steady as a rock. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, Paul. Bye. Goodbye, Sean. Take care. It's a pleasure to meet you both. Yeah, yeah, you too, Sean. Nice to meet you. All right, all right, all right, all right. This is fascinating. It is. But the fact remains is that you don't have the money to bring the mortgage up to date, so you're still going to have to sell. I'm sorry, Ray. We got no choice. Ray. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa. For reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door, as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. For it is money they have, and peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines. Where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game. And it'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick have to brush them away from their faces. Ray, when the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It's been erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball mark the time this field this game is a part of our past Ray it reminds us of all that once was good and it could be again oh people will come Ray people will most definitely come Ray you will lose everything You will be evicted.